Romans 16, Paul here is now going to finish up this letter. Uh, In this section, he's going to greet 18 men and eight women, two households amongst as well some house churches. And he's also sending his greetings from eight men and one woman that was apparently at least with him. There may have been others. So how some people wonder, how did he know so many Christians in Rome? Uh, If he had never been there, certainly we see him meeting many in his ministries through the years. And as the saying goes, all roads lead to Rome. A lot of people who were saved in other places filtered their way back to Rome. And Paul, as he was traveling, was hearing this person he had met here or done ministry with there is now back in Rome. So he had connections. Uh, It is not unlikely that he would have known this many people or at least known of them. And I think what immediately strikes us as we're going to read through here, not to make the comment every time, but just an intro, is the incredible diversity that we see right off the bat in the body of Christ. It's a wide range, men and women, Jews, Greeks, different cultures, different statuses, some likely slaves, some likely from higher society, and all of them together I guess, can be summed up in some of what Paul says, they're helpers in Christ. It's that fellowship of the gospel that Paul would say to the Philippians that draws them all together. And you would only find this type of thing in the body of Christ. The the world has certain things that pull people together, but usually those are just people that are very similar Uh, You know, you go to an Eagles game, there's Eagles fans there. You go to a concert of a particular band, it's their kind of fans there. The, The body of Christ, so unique in older, younger, all these different men, women, all these different people together centered around Jesus Christ and life and service to him. And you'll take note as we read through so many times he talks about this person in the Lord, first fruits of Acacia to Christ, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. All these connections, again, he just sees cataloged, connected, born out of that connection that we have in Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing that a Christian has that the world doesn't have is When you have this fellowship in the gospel, it's eternal. It's always just beginning. That whatever the world connects on, we go to the bar together and we're four for four Philly people. That's what we connect on. When that's over, it's over. And you could build some things, right, in relationship to other people. And you build around certain things. But eventually, all those things end in the Christian life. None of the things we ultimately connect on actually ever end. Jesus Christ and our relationship with him and his kingdom and service to him never actually end. They're just getting started. And so what we see here, I think, through all these kind of names is this beautiful snapshot of a life that was given to Christ and to his service. And, and the wonderful picture of the relationships that you can have and the things that are developed in that type of life. And it's a wonderful blessing 
that this type of chapter can even be written from a man like Paul. So let's jump in here just with that as an intro. Verses one and two, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So he begins by sending a commendation for Phoebe. She was from this Corinthian seaport city of Centria. Her name means bright or radiant. Uh, it was another form of the goddess, Ar- uh, the goddess uh, Armitsis, uh her name. Um, I forget what the other version of that would be. So she's likely a, a Gentile. If you're named after Artemis, you're, you're probably a Gentile. And what happens here is Paul, at one point in the book of Acts, Acts 18, 18, had stopped there in that seaport city. He had made a vow. Um, and it is likely in that time there he had met this lady, Phoebe. We don't know what the connection is or what the details are. But somewhere along there, he says she was a helper of himself, probably at that time. And she was a helper of the church. She had a good reputation, we know. And she had a history of being helpful. And it seems that she is the one, most believe, who's carrying this letter, this epistle, back to this church in Rome. That's why Paul mentions her first. What he writes is also an official commendation. It was something that would let the church know that she's to be trusted and helped. Uh, We don't know why she's traveling there. We don't know if she's a woman of some means or if her husband is traveling there and she's going with or if she's even married. There's a lot of, as we go through here, kind of speculation in some of the details around these individuals, things that we don't know for sure. But the things that are not speculation are the things I believe the Holy Spirit always wants us to be impressed with. And the first thing that Paul says about her is she's a servant of the church. That's what we know about this lady. Phoebe is a servant of the church. The word that's used is that of a deacon. Um, she is an official servant of the church. Uh, it is here probably the clearest biblical reference to a deaconess. The qualifications of deacons are also mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.11, where the word translated wives there is really just women. There's a qualification for women deaconesses, not for elders. Um, but officially, uh, we would have women deaconesses here. That's because of this passage here, uh, amongst others. And a lot of places in the church would see the same thing. She has a particular faithful history that is shown. And no doubt, it's part of the reason why Paul would trust her to take this letter. Uh, I don't think this is her first helpful job. I think she has a nice history there. And that's why Paul is willing to entrust her with this. And it says, secondly, that she wasn't just a helper of Paul. She was a helper, notice, of many. Wasn't just looking to help the really important folks like Paul the Apostle. If you knew Phoebe, you knew she was helpful. That's, that's the history she has. There are certain folks that if you need help with something, you would call them up. There are other folks you wouldn't call them up. 
She's the type that you're like, I need help. We're moving. We got some. I'm calling up Phoebe. Right. That's that's the history we have here. And she's a wonderful picture of a person. One of the qualifications, one of the main qualifications of deacons is that they're found faithful. And her character and her history is one that Paul can say, she's a helper of many and myself also. She didn't just start helping when she met the Apostle Paul. You know, sometimes if somebody famous is around them, people are like, oh, I'll help. No, she's, she's been a helper of many. And, you know, what, a, what an incredible privilege uh, to carry this. Certainly, she didn't know the dynamite that she had in her hand as she was walking to Rome or traveling to Rome. Uh, who knows what the warfare behind the scenes was there. Satan wouldn't even know what what this letter was going to accomplish one day in church history. You could just go through the list. Augustine was sitting there hearing words from this letter read, and his life has changed. Certainly Martin Luther hears, reads, from this letter, those words, the just shall live by faith, and his life is changed, and history is changed. A young John Wesley hears words from this letter read, and his heart is strangely warm, and the world set on fire in a new way. You could go down the list, what, what this has done in so many hearts and lives through church history. This faithful lady putting it in her hand. I'm commending her to you. She's a servant of the Lord. And you never know, as a servant of the Lord, in your simple faithfulness, what God is going to do with the simple things that you carry and you're faithful with. And this lady, wonderful testimony here that Paul begins with of her helpfulness and of her character. Now, verse 3, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So now we know quite a bit about Priscilla and Aquila. Paul met them in Corinth in Acts 18. Uh, they were Jews and tent makers. So it seems, as Paul was, that they became fast friends and they became partners in ministry. They're mentioned in other times in the scripture. Uh, usually, their names are moved back and forth. When the household officially is mentioned, it seems like Aquila is mentioned first, 18, Acts 18.2, 18.18, 18, 1 Corinthians 16.19. When they're talking about them just in general speaking terms, it seems that Priscilla is mentioned first here, Acts 18, 2 Timothy 4.19. Uh, she apparently had the more recognizable personality. I, I think probably a number of us. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing person. If I wasn't publicly speaking as a pastor, my wife is, is, has a lot more life and personality. Uh, she would be much more well-known than I if I wasn't standing in public somewhere talking, just in general. And I think Priscilla had the type of personality that not that Aquila didn't love the Lord. Sometimes people talk about this pair and they're like, he didn't seem that spiritual, but she was. No, she, she was just the person that you would come across first. She had the life. And somebody would recognize her. Oh, Priscilla and Aquila. Right? More people probably knew her. Oh, are you Priscilla's husband? Right, that type of thing. So 
Uh, it wasn't that the dude didn't have a life with the Lord, obviously. It says that they were both willing to risk their own necks for my life. Paul says, these people were willing to die for me. He is a godly guy. Uh, he's just not as full of personality, apparently, as Priscilla. And that's a part of what God gives people, and it's wonderful. But they are true partners in ministry. Interesting, we don't have the story of how they risk their necks for Paul's life. Um, it's still a part of the story yet to be told. In heaven, we get the full story. That's going to be a wonderful thing to read. But they were willing to do that for him. And it says that they are literally a gift to all the churches of the Gentiles. He says that he gives thanks for them, and so do all the churches. Their, their influence has gone out to affect numerous Christian bodies all over the place. They were with Paul in Corinth. They went with him to Ephesus. They were in Rome and apart. They went back. It says that they have a church here. Greet the church that is in their house. We know that they had a church in their house in Corinth. They are just people that everywhere they go, they're serving. They are connected with God's people. They are a blessing to them. They have an incredible testimony and, and wonderful marital fruit there as well. You know, I... I would encourage you, you got a husband or a wife that loves the Lord and is willing to serve them, serve together if you can. If your husband or your wife is serving and you don't have any reason not to serve with them, go serve with them. It's a beautiful thing to be able to do. This couple, this is what, they see, what we see. They're doing it together. They're always mentioned together. It doesn't matter kind of who's more forward in the moment or in the situation. Some people are not in the position where they have a spouse that they can do this with. If you have no reason not to, then you should. There's, there's only so much time to be able to pitch in and serve the Lord. These people, wherever they were, they were a gift. They were a couple that if they showed up at your church, they were a gift to have in your church. They were a, a group that would show up and just be a blessing no matter where they went. So these, these two, apparently, they're in Rome again. They had been kicked out at one point. Now they're back. Paul wants to give them his greeting, thinking of them, no doubt. Very fond friendship there. He says, at the end of five, greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Now, we don't really know much about him. His name means praiseworthy. But he's the first convert of Achaia. So apparently he was the first person saved in this particular area. Certainly I think, you know, it's pretty daunting. You can just imagine what it was like for Paul. You know, you're going into arenas that literally nobody knows the gospel. It happens on the mission field. And there's plenty of stories, so many, if you read a missionary biography or hear some of those testimonies, how how important and affecting it is when the first person gives their life to Christ. Some, some missionaries serve for years before they finally see one person turn. And Paul can remember this beloved individual, the first fruits, the first one to come. And as the first fruits were an offering of a harvest yet more to come, he always knew that this is one of the beginning. The rest are coming after this. So thinking fondly of this individual. Verse 6, greet Mary who labored much for us. Mary, most likely a Jewess, per her name. Uh, we know that she labored much. 
She literally labored the ideas to weariness. She worked. She went and she got stuff done. And he says, labored for us. You know, Paul, who knows, traveling somewhere, we don't know the exact details, traveling with people. This person came and this lady Mary just put in work until she was beat, served the Lord with her strength. And Paul can remember those things. You know, I think the things that would stick in the mind of the Apostle Paul are things that God looks at and he's pleased with as well. And that's why the Holy Spirit inspires him to put this down. He recognizes all of our labor for him, even in relation to other individuals. Greet Mary. Verse 7, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles and who also were in Christ before me. So Andronicus and Junia, we know that they were Jews per Paul's fellow countrymen. The, the idea is kinsmen, but he says it about a lot of people here, so they're not his literal relations. Paul would, had some kind of huge family then. Uh, they are most likely Jews like him, maybe more specifically Benjamites. Some people think he might be talking about his tribe, as he says, kinsmen. But their fellows with him there, they were also saved before Paul. They knew Christ before him, so they were believers that got saved early on. Who knows, maybe right there at Pentecost. We, we're not sure exactly, but they came to know Christ before Paul knew Christ. And it also says that they had shared at least one of his imprisonments. We don't know the details, but they were in prison with him. I remember speaking with one believer at one point, uh, and he was just saying, in some places in the world, the way you know who the real Christians are, are you meet them in jail. <laughs> that's, that's how you know. There are people that are out there that fake it, but you end up in prison somewhere with other Christians in some of these countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. And Paul met these people. What are you here for? Preaching the gospel. Me too, right? This... You know, we don't know what the exact details were, but these are also Christians who at some point had shared that with him. And there's a little bit of debate here because the name Junia could possibly be a man or woman. You could say it's almost like Pat, where, you know, it could be short for Patrick or Patricia or Casey and Arkles, right? There's a couple names that could go either way. So the... The context here is going to lean certainly toward it being a male, but because of that there, what some people want to do is, where it says they were of note among the apostles, they want to say, this is a husband and wife team, and Junia was a female apostle. And so we should have female apostles because it's clearly speaking of one here. Uh, that's not the best interpretation of this passage. Uh, what most likely what he's talking about here is Andronicus and Junia are both men. They are themselves either recognized as apostles or just people that the apostles knew well. 
the language, actually, the article in the language can make them a member of the class named. It's used in scriptures that way, like Luke 1, 28, 7, 28, Acts 15, 22. Uh, it also seems very unlikely that Paul would be thrown in prison with a man and a woman. That was a very unlikely scenario. So the language makes it as if they are males. And particularly, it seems like the easiest way to read it would be they are part of the class mentioned. So we know that they're the 12 in the scriptures were always just the 12. They were recognized specifically as a unique group, those apostles. But the word was used for a wider group as well. We're told that the Lord's brothers were mentioned as apostles, that Barnabas is directly called an apostle in Acts 14, 14. And there's other times that the word is used as more of a messenger for a wider group of men like Timothy or Sylvanus or others in scripture. So the, the very simple reading of this is Andronicus and Junia are early believers who were themselves apostles and were of note that people knew them. Second easy explanation is these were guys that were simply well known in those early Christian circles and by the apostles uh, because they had been saved early and they were serving the Lord so much so that they were getting thrown in prison. To lean toward it being a female right off the bat kind of clashes with the context and then also doesn't fit with the rest of what Scripture says, which becomes an issue. So if you have questions about that, you could talk to Brian Weed afterwards. <laughs> now, it goes on there. Verse 8. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Amplius was a Latin name that was common among slaves in the day. Apparently it meant amplified or enlarged. And Paul describes him as beloved in the Lord. He's going to mention a couple people like that. And, you know, I think in some ways, Paul doesn't just throw those things in because this sounds nice and I'm an apostle, so I got to be kind. Uh, I don't think Paul pulled any punches or said anything or was afraid to say anything to anybody. So when he says things, he means it. And, you know, some, sometimes as believers, you just have a great fellowship with some people right off the bat. I think he knew this individual. I think he probably loved, literally loved them, had great fellowship with him. And even, even I think in some ways, you can, you know, read a certain author and everybody particularly likes certain people. They speak to you in a certain way where somebody else can read the same book and it might not speak to them the same way or they don't connect quite as well. Again, you can read a missionary biography and there's certain people you can really like. Even as we read through the scriptures, you might lean towards oh, the stuff that Paul wrote or the stuff that John wrote. There are certain individuals that kind of stick out to you. Uh, you know, even when you get into heaven, you might get along with that person a little bit better than others. Who knows? And on earth, we have the same thing. There's, there are times we can just click with certain individuals. And I think when Paul does these things, that's just what he's mentioning. Like, this person's my beloved. I had a wonderful Christian fellowship with them. And wonderfully, those things are going to continue. Amplius, he was that type of person. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Statius, my beloved. Urbanus is a Latin name. Uh, apparently, it was either leaned towards meaning elegant or polite and was more of a high society type name, common in higher levels of society. 
and he was recognized as a fellow worker in Christ, someone who was on the same team. Paul, uh, I think particularly in a day and age where there was such persecution, Paul going to a city and get beat up and thrown in jail, you're happy to have other people on your team. I I don't know if there's quite the, the feel of competition uh, that maybe there was, maybe from the Jews, but in terms of Christian service, Paul was happy to find a fellow worker anywhere on the face of the earth. And when he found another person serving Jesus, he was happy to have that person. So he's happy to see this person, Urbanus, as a fellow worker recognized. Here's somebody on the same team. Really, we should see believers the same way, that are out there, that are serving the Lord, we're on the same team. It doesn't need to be competition or jealousy or, uh, you know, any type of unhealthy interaction. Stages is, is an uncommon Greek name, and it meant ear of grain. I don't know what that does for you, but it's one of those things you throw into a Bible study. So uh, we, don't, we don't know much about him. Uh, but Paul loved him as well. Another individual there, a believer that Paul knew had stuck in his mind. They had been blessed in their fellowship together. You know, this is part of why he wrote earlier, I want to come and get my fill of fellowship with you. He loved these individuals. 10, Apelles approved in Christ. Apelles, again, was Greek in terms of a name, but it was apparently often used by Jews, so we're not sure what this individual's background was. What we do know is Paul calls him approved, which has the idea of having proved dependable in difficult circumstances. He's been tested and found approved. This is a uh, veteran Christian here. This is a guy who's been seasoned, who's been around. Maybe, you know, there are times where people have been taken and threatened with martyrdom or tortured for a time and not died and then been released so he may have been one of those believers that was common, unfortunately, uh, in those days. So to have passed the test, to have not denied Christ, was often seen as having been approved, having been a witness or a martyr in that day and age. Even if you weren't necessarily killed, you had been a martyr, a witness of Christ. And so this is one of those individuals. And I think it's always great. If you're going anywhere, or serving anywhere, or in any body of Christ, to have believers that have been around and done it for a while, who aren't shocked when things go wrong, or people are immature, or sin happens somewhere, it's great to have some people that are approved, some vets, some seasoned individuals who have served the Lord for a while and have gone through things and seen things. It's a blessing to have them around. He's one of those individuals. Paul then greets the household of Aristobulus. Now, some think he may have been the brother of King Herod Agrippa I. We don't know. Uh, It seems he greets the household because Aristobulus is probably not alive anymore. Slaves in the household sometimes would be passed on. We're not sure, Um, but he's greeting those individuals. Verse 11, greet Herodian, my countrymen. Again, another Jew. We don't know much else about him. And then he greets another household here, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. 
Some think historically there was a Narcissus that was a wealthy freedman that was executed under an order of Nero's mother, and then his goods confiscated, of course. Uh, dangerous place to do well. And then some people think he's greeting that individual's household. We're not sure if that's who it was or if this person is still alive or not. But he greets in this household, notice, those that are in the Lord. So apparently not all were saved, maybe some. Uh, and those that weren't saved wouldn't have been in Christian fellowship. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who are likely twin sisters or sisters. It was common to give them similar names. And it says, who have labored in the Lord. Their names mean delicate and dainty, which are good girl names. I guess you don't want it to be big and muscular or something like that. So delicate and dainty sounds nice. So they've done their part. They've labored in the Lord. This pair here serving together, I think it's always a blessing when you can have siblings or people that you grow up in the same family with that serve the Lord together. I know I'm blessed to be a part of that. It says as well that they, that they greet um, Persis, the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. Persis means Persian lady. So it was probably a Persian lady. Uh, and Paul says she has labored much in the Lord. Uh, notice more. Those, those that have labored in the Lord, and here we have one that has labored much in the Lord. Uh, the past two served, did their part, but there's a recognition of more labor put in here. And it seems to be past tense, so most people guess that this is probably an older lady, someone who has served, given uh, as much as she can, and is now more in a situation of rest than the same type of labor that she had. I think, again, if that's true, that's a good example for us. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our strength, but we don't know when we're going to lose our strength. You never know when your ability to serve the Lord in strength uh, is going to be gone. We only have it for so long. We take it for granted that it's going to be there. But the reality is that slips away, sometimes in unnatural situations, a sickness or an accident or something like that. But also naturally, we only have so much time to work. Christ says, the night cometh when no one can work. So there's a time where we can serve the Lord, and then there's a time where that chance of service is over. And then there's a time where we ease because God has created life to do that and slow down. In a similar way, we enter into this life, and God doesn't throw us immediately into the hustle and bustle of it. He sends us here in weakness, and we grow. We mature. We gain strength. And then we enter into the work and the wild nature of it. And then what he does is he causes us to have to slow down again. And weakness comes into life again. And what we're doing is now we have preparation for the next stage of life. And it's part of the way God has designed things. And there's no need to fight against it. 
but there is a need to take note of it. And if while you had strength, you used it to serve the Lord, and you can look back, and your testimony can be that you labored much, you're going to be happy about that. That's this woman's testimony. So if you get in heaven and see a Persian woman, you can guess. Are you Persis? 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus is perhaps the same Rufus of Mark 15:21, which would also make him the son of Simon the Cyrene. Paul calls him chosen in the Lord, which gives us an idea that he was notable of some note, uh, it seems, in the early church. Um, he may have been, we're not sure, 100 percent. Paul also says to greet his mother and mine. We don't know who she is. He doesn't give us details. But it's a wonderful testimony to womanhood and to motherhood in general that the Holy Spirit would want to extend a blessing to this motherly heart that extended beyond her own family. We don't know where this happened. It might have come. Some people guess when Barnabas came and grabbed Saul or Paul while he was at Tarsus and then brought him at first to Antioch. That might have been then where this young Paul gets taken in to this home where Rufus might have been known and his mother was there and uh, this young apostle had a mother help him out. You need some soup, Paul. You need to go to bed, right? <laughs> Take a jacket with you or something. So, you know, I think that the Lord, uh, he has established motherhood. His heart is pleased in it. Certainly, we know in the body of Christ, not everybody plays the role of motherhood the way that they should. So to have an extended motherhood in the body of Christ, uh, even to an apostle, ends up becoming a blessing for those who do it in a way that's honoring to the Lord. 14. Greet Asynchronous, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. So here we have a whole group of bros. Uh, we don't know a lot about them. It seems to be they're part of the same church. So this is like the bro church here. Uh, all these guys hanging out together. It's cool to have a group of gentlemen serving the Lord. Paul can think of them and all of their names together. He says, greet Philogelus, Julia and Neris and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So this seems to be a husband and wife with their two children. Olympus may be a part of that, or maybe just a fellowship, as he says, all the saints that are with them. Paul, you know, if he met them, stayed with them somewhere, or knew the family, uh, maybe he knew Neris and did, just heard that there was a new sister, didn't know the name yet or something, but he's greeting these individuals. Then he says in 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ greet you. Uh, certainly, the command of a holy kiss uh, was not culturally something we do all the time today. Although I have been in some Hispanic circles where it's still practice and it's lovely. So, 
Five times in scriptures this is mentioned, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 1 Peter 5, 14. So it's mentioned a number of times. You would think this is like a random command, but it's actually commanded a bunch in scripture. And the point here is this. It's not that we need to all just start kissing each other right now. The point is very simple. The love of the brethren in greeting. Paul is writing all these greetings to people, and he says that there's, this greeting is supposed to be for all the brethren. So they weren't supposed to ignore the folks in the body of Christ they didn't like. Right? It's a little even more obvious than it is for us today. You know, you're hugging and kissing somebody, you're hugging, and then you're like, Ooh, you know, you know, this person's just entered into the body of Christ, and they don't feel very welcome now. So it became very obvious this and particularly again the culture you're being kicked out of these cultures you're in a dangerous situations some of them martyred a lot of them losing family to to have the body of christ be what it's supposed to be uh you know it's it's a it's a command that essentially i could say shake somebody's hand when we say greet somebody actually greet somebody you never know who who comes in here who needs that certainly you know, the, the Lord starts to move and work in our culture. Man, the world is rough. There's people messed up out there, caught up in all types of weird stuff, right? If we start to see people getting saved and you see a person who's coming out of a trans background in the church, you, you can, they can sit down next to you and you can turn and shake somebody else's hand and turn away. Or you could turn and shake their hand and say, what's your name? Is this your first time here? What brought you here? And see what happens. Right? People should see that there is a true love in the body of Christ. Just greet one another. This is a very simple command, but it actually means something. Greet one another. And that's why the Bible says it over and over and over and over again. So we don't have to do it the way they did it with a holy kiss. Notice you got to throw that in there too. But the greet one another we need to do. And, and he, even, he even expands it to not only just individuals, but he says, the churches of Christ greet you. He's talking with these groups of believers, and they want to greet all you group of believers. Whole churches greeting other whole churches. You know, we've had some privilege of doing that. We've been on the screen with the church in Zambia and other places where we connect, and it's a blessing for our church to say hello to them, certainly when we have the pastor's conference here, we're bringing in individuals from other churches. We want to greet them and be hospitable to them. It's, it's an understanding of the connection between the family of God and the brethren that are contemporaries who are also going to be our eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should be on a personal and larger public level. So, now, 17 can seem like it doesn't fit in, but it does because Paul wants to guard everything he's just been encouraging, this, this love of individuals and of the body of Christ. So he says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such... Do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. 
Anybody, Paul says, is trying to tear down the, fall- the fellowship of the gospel is tearing down the foundation that Christ is building. So first he says, don't easily give up the doctrine that you have learned. Mark and note people who are causing divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. He doesn't just say that are causing divisions and offenses. What they're causing divisions and offenses around are around doctrine, the things that they have been taught. Because I think this is important in our day, it's almost like doctrine is kind of like secondary. You know, we, we need to love people. Jesus is about love. People say stuff like this. And, you know, the apostles, they're kind of about love. And as long as we love people, you know, it's almost like we don't really hold anything too strictly because then we might not be loving towards people. So then we get fuzzy on things like hell or creation or marriage or sexuality or things that are pretty clear doctrines, salvation being in Christ alone, not having to be circumcised or keep a dietary law. We, we could go into the, all the different things that were their day and age and our day and age. But it's not our job as Christians to make the faith that was once delivered to the saints palatable to the culture. It's our job to hold on to the truth. And there are always going to be individuals who, because they meet somebody they like, because a person's slick and clever, they, get, they look good, they sound good, it's not a devil up in the pulpit, that they don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But to befriend bad doctrine is to rob the master in the end. And Paul understands, he, everywhere he went, he established churches, weird doctrines started coming in. Strange teachings, and he had to address them kind of all over the place. And so here he needs to say, look, people are going to want to come in and cause division. We see this in the church all over the world. They're going to want to cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Particularly, I would say to folks who are younger, be careful to give up the doctrine you've learned from people who actually love you and have proven that to people who don't really care about you. You can like a professor who gets paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to confuse 18-year-olds who has no actual love toward you, isn't going to care for your life like your parents who raised you. Paul wants to talk about Timothy. He talks to him about the doctrine he learned from his grandma and his mom. You stick with that. The people who actually love you, care about you, have displayed that, have shown that. Be careful about the person who wants to come in and just blow up all those thoughts, what you learned in Sunday school, because they're intellectual, or maybe they're likable in some way, or maybe it's a friend or a romantic interest who hasn't proven anything in type of love and care for you. Paul gave his life for individuals, literally put his life on the line, and then people would come in with some other doctrine and try to steal them away. And Paul says, there's always going to be those that come in. So 
They're going to steal, cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Second, he says, note them. Anyone who's seeking to divide you from others to themselves. There's so many voices out there. And there's always somebody out there who's trying to, they're the elitists, right? You know, we believe this, only us, we're the only real church. You can only learn from me. Don't let other people teach you the Bible. Don't listen to anybody else. You can't read anything else. You can't think about it on your own. There's always some new weird YouTube person or pastor on TV somewhere. A lot of voices out there. But when they begin to teach doctrine contrary to the scripture and pull you and divide you from people who love God and are walking with him, there's a problem. Paul says, mark that individual. Note them. Recognize what's actually happening here. Be careful about that. There's something going on that's not from the Lord. Note them, and then he gives the final response. Notice, and avoid them. Leave. Get away. Stop watching the stuff. Stop listening. Stop reading it. If anyone, Paul says to the Corinthians, is ignorant, let him be ignorant. That's kind of a good saying. <laughs> if they're going to be ignorant, if they're going to hold to this false doctrine, let them be ignorant. He says to Titus, reject the divisive man after the first and second ad admonition, knowing such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. Here's what you do. You leave. You leave. That's what you do. If you're in a weird church and you're listening to this, leave. Avoid that individual. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. We, that's, that's our response. I get away from that thing. If I go weird, get rid of me first. <laughs> or if you can't, leave the church, right? That's the whole point. Paul's like, it, that's why we always say, open your Bible, read it, see. You can read it for yourself. You don't have to trust me. And we need to be careful of those that are trying to steal people, divide from the body of Christ, from people who actually love you and have proven that, and take you away from the doctrines that have been given to us in Christ Jesus that are clear there for people to read it, for some weird thing that's not even a real doctrine. And Paul knows this is going to happen to this church because he says, verse 18, here's the real motive. Those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus. Here's the point. They're not serving Jesus Christ. They're serving their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they, de they deceive the hearts of the simple. They're not obviously deceivers. They deceive with smooth words and flattering speech, but they don't serve Christ. They serve themselves. Paul says again in Titus chapter 1, For there are many insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households. Isn't it sad? You probably know some. A whole household subverted by some weird doctrine away from the simplicity in Christ teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Again, he would say to the Philippians, many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. There's as many weird 
thoughts and notions in Christendom as there are idols in heathen lands. And there are plenty of weird voices out there that are twisting those things and using those things to make money, to make their own name, to set their own brand. And Paul says, you need to be careful. They don't always sound evil. They don't always look evil. But they deceive from the simple truth that's in Jesus Christ. And it's not just a person who hasn't heard the truth and needs to learn. That's not what Paul's talking about here. There are always people who haven't heard the truth. We should, as he said earlier in Titus, after the first and second admonition, then you reject the individual. But it's different when there's a person up there leading something, knowing what they're saying, actively seeking to lead people astray. And he said, those people are out there, and there's plenty of them. And they're out there for themselves. And we need to be able to note them, see them, recognize them, and avoid them. Because they're not here to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I follow in their wake, I'm following somebody who is not serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And who Paul says ends up becoming an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not that they don't use the name anymore. It's that they're an enemy of the doctrine that was given from Jesus Christ himself that Paul taught these individuals that any of us can pick up the word of God and read it and believe it. And if they want to deceive you from that, be careful. That's what Paul's saying. The Bible wasn't written for the most intelligent people in the world. It was written for normal folks, people like you and me, common men and women, so that we can pick it up, read what God has to say to us, believe it, and choose God over every man. And so if I begin to get deceived from the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus, something's wrong. Something's off. And there's going to be religious talk to it. They might sound and look good, it probably sounded and looked better than Paul. We know Paul wasn't the most impressive physical presence. He didn't, his voice didn't sound the best. But man, you needed that content. And Paul knew that this was something they were going to face, so he warns them about it. And he doesn't want to see them taken away from it. He wants to see verse 19 and 20 continue. For your obedience has become known to all. They were, he, Paul was blessed because these believers were known for their obedience to Jesus Christ. And our obedience is always our clearest measure of our love to him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Didn't say if you love me, feel me. Cry lots of tears. If you love me, keep my commandments. Your obedience, he says, has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise to what is good and simple concerning what is evil. He had kind of mentioned this before. We don't need to be experts in evil and sin. I don't need to look into every dark thing that's happening in the world. Paul would tell the Corinthians that he wanted them to be, to in malice, be babes. I, I don't want you to be pros at malice. I want you to give yourself to learn the things that are good. Be wise in what is good. It takes effort to learn what is good. 
It doesn't take effort to be evil because it's our nature. We can easily be evil and learn evil. It, it takes effort to learn what is good, to be wise to what is good, to know what is good. What's God's heart? What's God's mind? How does God see people? How does God see things? That, that takes some effort. And Paul says, be wise towards that. Give yourself to those things. Learn what is good. Learn about heaven. It, being evil, we can get those things. Again, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote The Screwtape Letters, if you don't know, it's a book about kind of a high-level demon writing to a low-level demon trying to tempt an individual away from the Lord. And the whole book is kind of to see how Satan works in tempting our lives in various ways. But somebody asked him about it, and he said, really, the book should have a companion book of heaven's point of view from the scenario. He wrote from the enemy's kind of hell's point of view of the scenario. But he said, it's going to take a more heavenly person than I to write that book, because I'm way more familiar with him than I am with those things. And I think in some ways we can all kind of say that. Our nature is more familiar with things that typically are sinful than things that are righteous. And we need to be wise to those things. And we can be simple to the things that are sinful. We should give ourselves to those things that are right. And Paul says, on top of that, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. It's great, right? Why do I need to be an expert in evil when he's going to be crushed by the God of peace pretty soon? That king is going to be broken. And if I'm sniffing around all the time and evil things and other people's trash, I'm going to smell like it pretty soon. If I stay pretty close to the Lord, that's going to have an effect on my life too. And in the end, he's going to win. The God of peace wonderful phrase, is going to crush Satan. Notice what he says, too. Under your feet shortly. He doesn't just say under his foot. I find that interesting. You're going to participate. You're going to be a winner. You feel like Satan's kicking you now? You're going to have your foot on his neck one day. He doesn't win in the end. It's a good thing to remember, especially when it seems like there's lots of evil around us. He doesn't get the victory. The God of peace does. Now, he introduces a few others that are with him. Timothy, my fellow worker. We know Timothy well. Philippians 2, 2 Timothy 1, Ben with Paul. He said, nobody serves with me like Timothy, like a son in the faith. Timothy, Timothy is there with him as his fellow worker. Lucius, Jason, Sospiter, my countrymen greet you. Apparently, these are also Jews. Jason might be the same Jason of Acts 17, 5 through 9. Sospiter may be from Acts 20. We're not sure if they're the same individuals. 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Uh, Tertius apparently was writing as Paul was dictating. Paul would then write, it seems, with his own hand, sign off himself or part of it. But Tertius, helpful in this, his name actually means, is Latin for three. We're going to see in a little bit he greets a quartus, which is Latin for four. Paul knew a secundus, which is Latin for two. So there must have been a primus walking out there somewhere. You know, some, some Latin family who just started naming boys, one, two, three, four, you know, who knows. They're just throwing them out there. I, I do know an author that was named Octavius. 
uh, because he was the eighth child of his parents, if any you want a goal to shoot for. 23, Gaius, my host, and the hosts of the whole church greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Quartus, a brother. These individuals in Corinth, Paul knew them, Gaius as his host here. Uh, good relations, again, with these individuals. You know, I think what an interesting thing it must have been to sit there listening to Paul dictate this letter. And then once it was done, did they sit there and talk afterwards? Paul, that part where you said this, that part where you're talking about this, you know, these guys are sitting there just listening here, a part of what's happening. It must have been pretty incredible. And, and to say, yeah, we're behind this. We're, everything he said in Romans, yeah, we're behind it. They were with him in these things. I, I think as we close the letter, you know, I just thought, would you want to put your name to this? I would. You know, in the world that we live in, there are a lot of people that wouldn't want to put their name to this letter right here. But these guys, they got to put their name to it. We're, we're behind this. We're with Paul in these things. And hopefully our, our hearts can all say the same thing. 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul's classic kind of closing here. I think in the names of all these relations, he's going to close with the final doxology, but finishing all these names and relations, you know, I just think the, at the end of it all, when, because we're going to meet all these people. Well, if, if we get into heaven and we talk to Phoebe or Cortus or Persis, or Mary, and say, what are your fondest memories of life? I think the fondest memories are going to be the Christian fellowship we had and where we served our Lord and his kingdom. I I don't think they're going to be talking about the cool vacation they had or when they binge-watched some series. I think what they're going to be talking about is the people that I love that are still here when I loved them before we entered into heaven together and how we serve the Lord together. Those are going to be the things that are the sweetest memories. And we have the chance to do those things. And whatever time God gives us, it's all worth it. And in the end, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what these individuals were. Now, Paul closes with this benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. He mentioned that in Romans eleven twenty five. The mystery that was secret before was that God was going to have this time period again of Jews and Gentiles in one body, with a heavenly calling to be glorified with their glorified Savior. That was a mystery. Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, Paul says in the Old Testament, those writers didn't know anything about this church era here and what God was doing in the way he was doing it. But now it's been made known. And Paul says, this is part of my gospel. God gave me this to go share with the world, which again is just God, right? God took the bigotest, most bigoted Jew on the face of the earth and said, take my gospel to the Gentiles. 
Pretty crazy, right? Only Jesus Christ. That, that Jew, I'm going to save him. He's the worst. And I'm going to make him an example of grace to anybody else who will see it. And I'm going to send him into all the nations of the world with my good news. And I'm going to make him the one who reveals this mystery. And here we are. Still blessed by what he did through this man. Right? Remarkable individual, but a more remarkable story from the God who is behind him. His gospel received by Jesus Christ, but now made manifest. Now we're living in the time where we can see it. And by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. Most likely those prophetic scriptures are not the Old Testament ones, but the ones being written in the New Testament, being made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. That's what God's still looking for, what the Romans were displaying and he encouraged them to hold on to. Obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's stand. We want our lives to be in the reality of those things in the day and age that we live. Obedience to the faith as we live in the mystery that has been revealed in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the body of Christ. Lord, it's hard for me to imagine my life outside of the body of Jesus Christ. So many wonderful brothers and sisters in Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that you would allow us to be faithful servants where you have us. Wonderful examples here, Lord, the things that you would stir in our own hearts. I pray that you would allow us to be exhorted there. The things, Lord, that we're supposed to see so that we can just have the right gratitude. So that we can hold, Lord, with its proper weight. Allow us to see those things in your Holy Spirit. And certainly, Lord Jesus, we know that we are weak outside of you. So, Lord, keep us and allow us to be obedient, holding to that faith in this day and age, salt and light, while you have us here. Until you come again, until you take us home. In Jesus' name, amen.